interest in the show, just go to pgttcm.com, check out all of our cool t-shirts and stickers. Heck, we even got some shower curtains in there. Keep clean, look cool, have cool stickers to put on stuff. Join us on Patreon, get a free sticker. Or don't, it's up to you. This episode is brought to you by Donner. Check out the show notes to find a good deal at Donner. Like the sound of this? This is the Donner Island Delay. And the really cool Donner LP that I've shown off on, like, Instagram. Check it out. Uh, They've got some really good summer deals. And check out their snap deals as well. Use the link in the show notes to help support the show. Get yourself some cool musical instruments, maybe some patch chords. Cool. This episode is brought to you by California Tea House. California Tea House is a family-owned tea store where you can find some of the world's best loose-leaf tea and organic herbal tea blends. Like a fine wine, there is no comparison between fine loose-leaf and common broken-leaf tea bags. So, yeah, no, check them out. Check them out. They have quite a bit of pretty awesome tea collections. I'm a huge fan of their white teas. Uh, They have a tea club that you can join, but, you know, they've got green tea, black tea, white tea, oolong, uh, robios, and herbal tea. They've also got teaware. So check out California Tea House in the show notes. You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. in Farmer Days, here once again to talk to you about the Cthulhu Mythos, its books, its monsters, its unfortunate human casualties, its timeline in general, and even its tangential bits, like the dreamlands or things of a weird nature that are Lovecraftian leaning. Once more we head into those dark woods, further feeling those malevolent forces upon us. Once again we walk down the lightless stone staircase in the middle of nowhere. You're listening to KZOM. Hey everyone, it is me, DB Spitzer, and to my virtual right, as always, Farmer Dave, David Heath. Dave, how the heck is it going? It is... Well, but also a little cold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A freak snowstorm the other day. It's uh, melted pretty much uh, down down here, down here, uh, up there. I'm I'm sure it may have. Uh, did it? Did uh, we it got s- more. We got more snow this morning. You're kidding. We didn't get any down here. Does uh, this look like a face that is kidding? No, for no, those it doesn't. Who you are listening to on the podcast? <laughs> no, it does not look like a face that is kidding. Uh, on on Skype, it looks like a picture of a goat. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah, no, no, that's crazy. That's crazy. Um, I think we may have gotten a light dusting this morning, but it melted before school. So. Uh, yeah, no, uh, my artichoke plant in front of the house got trashed. Just to let people know, I'm not gardening in the graveyard. I'm gardening around the caretaker's house. And, uh, let's see. Do you call it arty? No, I do not. I do not. (laughs) Next time I go to your house, I'm going to call it arty. Okay. And, um, let's see. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's April. Everyone's, uh, getting their taxes done. 
So that kind of, uh, you know, little time stamp when this episode happened. Uh, Dave, did you get all your taxes done? Oh, crap. No, I haven't. Oh, shoot. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm It's like March, right? But, oh, okay. Yeah. I'll go. I will go. And I've got uh, the weekend to fill out my extension. Okay, cool, cool. And I make so little money, I just, like, fill out an easy form online and zip it in. And they're like, here's your 50 bucks. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> No, it's more than 50 bucks, but I'm not going to disclose that information to the public anyway, because they can probably just look that up online somewhere. Uh, yeah, no, taxes. Uh, Oblivion's is doing, like, dark beers and uh, pasta dishes, which I don't think are a good combination. I even told Hans and Brewster, I was like, I don't think that's a good idea. And they're like, we don't want to hear what you have to say. And... Let's see. It's it's really muddy out. It's it's mud and snow, and frosty in spots. Yeah, uh, so I was was out. I was out working, working on the mud because you know farms weird. You just get muddy and stuff. Oh yeah. And do you know what looked up at me from the mud? What's that? Eyes. Baby goats. I, I imagine. Baby goats. Yeah. yeah but it's, it, when we finally cleaned it off, it's like we call it chocolate chip. It look. It literally looks like chocolate chip cookie dough it's got its fur is all this sort of buff light brown and it's got this dark chocolate brown spots all over it so yeah we call it chocolate chip okay cool but it was like sitting there saying hmm, it's snowing and you decided to uh not realize my mom was getting into birth and chocolate chips you know just gave i'm afraid that the goat chocolate chip gave earth one star review for its first day it's doing a little <laughs> bit better now it's a little yeah, happier yeah. now it gets all its cousins and stuff but you know it was a uh yeah i'm just gonna give this place a one star review okay <laughs> or it would if it had fingers i mean it's got little hooves so. oh sure yeah yeah all right so um that's enough about Oleander for the week. So I talked to <laughs> one of our true, and a person I definitely can call a, a, a true friend of the show. Oh, yeah. has been on quite a bit, but uh, I have never interviewed before. Mm-hmm. And that's Ken Hype. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, game designer extraordinaire. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, as well as author, and he told me to tell you hi. Oh, yeah. No, I listened to the interview while I was editing it up this morning, and yeah, no, it was, it was great to hear Ken say, say hello to DB for me. And I was like, yeah. And he also said something else. Oh, okay. <laughs> he said, for me to tell you, the human race is about to fall, and the rise of a falcon shall grow upon the death of the sun. Um, something like that, I guess. Oh, okay. Exactly. But uh, he said you knew what I would, he, he said you would understand. Oh, yeah, totally, totally. It means meet him in October for drinks in yeah. 2022 yeah. for the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival in Portland, uh, Oregon. Hopefully, yeah. He said he's planning <laughs> on making it this year. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, I've reached out. So it's probably too early to give out too many things, but I've reached out to another friend of a show, and we're, we're hoping to do something uh, uh, special. We'll, we'll hear more as we get closer to the festival. All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. All right, so what do we got going on this week? We've got uh, Holly, 
I, I believe that's where Puff the Magic Dragon is from. And then... Uh, I think that's Hanali. Oh, okay, okay. Hanali, that's in the other corner. Yeah, yeah. We've got Ken Height. For some reason, I had written down that we were going to talk about Kite Man, but we're ta- you, you talked Kite to Kite Man. Man. Yeah. Kite Man. What, what, what is it? I can't remember. What is his, what is his catchphrase? Damn? I don't know. <laughs> Kite phrase is, I think it's, I think, damn, that, that's Kite Man's uh, catchphrase. <laughs> and uh, then we're going to be talking about Honduras in D&D on D&D which yeah and, and no no we are going to you're going to be talking about it and I'm going to be in this case not in my head because I know very little bit about Hondor oh you know more about Hondor than you think <laughs> oh, oh no it's, it's I, I look, Kite Man's catchphrase hell yeah okay that's Kite Man's is, is, that's Kite Man's is, is that Sorry from the that. Harley Quinn cartoon or uh, from the, I think it's actually kind of been from the beginning. Oh, I actually did okay. a thing. You know what, Kite Man? I we go off on one of my favorite oh, sure, characters. Yeah. You know what, Kite Man's uh, alter ego's name? No. Uh, Charles Brown. Okay. So Charlie Brown and the kite. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, okay. Got that's, it. That's where they got the name. That's pretty funny. Uh, and Kite Man's a... Let's see. He's, he's, he's not a Batman villain, is he? He's a... Uh, yeah, originally I think he was a Batman, and then, like, Justice League of, of Vermont or something. Okay, okay. Because I was like, is he, like, one of those, like, Flash villains or, like, trying to now, think... I think he started out as a Kite Man, but uh, okay. uh, I, did a, I did something way, way back when, I think... Uh, on uh, when we were back at Dave's Corner, oh yeah, or, uh, and the Dave's Underground Goat shenanigan, I did a, a whole episode on Kite Man. Oh yeah, yeah, that that was a long time ago. <laughs> a long time ago, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, it's uh, yeah, no, I've been recently watching the uh, Harley Quinn uh, cartoon with Sarah, and uh, Kite Man is in that, and it's like, oh, nice Kite Man. There's been mention of Kite Man in the Peacekeeper. Uh, show and it's it's like well seems like kite man is getting some some uh love so so so, so if, if a hardcore comic fanatic mm-hmm. that basically tells a story in a very sad i mean sad tear-jerking way yeah um the war of jokes and riddles hmm it has the origin of how he became Kite Man. Yeah. And it, it's a, it, it literally is it's a tearjerker. <laughs> okay, I'll have to check it out. That's quite a bit different than how he's portrayed in uh, Harley Quinn, where he's kind of a dumb bro dude. Um, yeah, that's how most. And um, it's interesting. So just throw this out. And uh, I'm the war of jokes and riddles. Yeah is the arc where Bruce Wayne uh, proposes to Selena Kyle. Oh, okay. And, and it's the one thing that he's got to tell her that is this story. Okay. Because this is something that he personally felt guilty of, and he had to get off his shoulder before he could ask her uh, to marry him. Okay. Huh. Interesting. Interesting. Hell yeah! <laughs> 
Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So, okay. Uh, it has nothing to do with what we're talking about. No, no, no. But brought, this tangent was brought to you by Dave Strange Trivia. Yeah, yeah. So, Holly yeah. is a thing, is a place, it's a person. Do you know who first cr- uh, created Holly? I have no idea. Ambrose Pierce. Oh. Yes. Okay. So, so Holly comes in two of Ambrose Pierce's stories. Um, and in one of them, just, um, is um, the uh, resident of Carcosa. Yeah. And the other is... Um, and where I'm going to get this exactly... Uh, right here. Oh, uh, uh, oh, of uh, the death of uh, Halpin uh, Fraser. Oh, cool. So the death of Halpin Fraser. Uh huh. And this is, you know, I, I've read it. And, uh, I, I think I've talked about this on the show. You know, I oh, sure, suffer yeah. from ADH. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Um. So I don't. Sometimes I don't get things as well as from reading. So I'm really, I'm hoping to find a, an audio copy because I really want to go over the story again. Oh, sure, yeah. But yeah. you read The Death of Halpin Frazier. Yeah. And it takes place somewhere in the vicinity of Mount St. Helens. Oh, interesting. Now, I just thought of this. Yeah. We're kind of in the vicinity of Mount St. Helens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So everybody, this is absolutely not... This is the rumor I'm starting. Okay. The death of Halvin Fraser takes place in Oleander. Hey, it works for me. Or outside of Oleander. Yeah. No, but it doesn't. But I'm telling people that from now on. Now you are listening. Know that this is the source. We made it up. It's here. Yeah. But so. Um, I mean, you can yeah, see yeah. Mount St. Helens from <laughs> your farm, but. <laughs> yeah. So, so you know. Who's to say? Yeah. So, um, Holly is, strangely enough, Holly is not in either story. Okay. But he's quoted in the beginning of each story as sort of a, a preface. Okay. And Ambrose Pierce doesn't say who he is. He just says, you know, one name. Uh, and it's, it's almost like he's quoting a philosopher. Uh-huh. So it's like, and, and the reader, even though this is somebody that Beers is made up, you're supposed to assume it's like, you know, one of those na- one-name philosophers like Plato, Aristotle, yeah. The Rock, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the main philosophers. Sure. Um, and so he quotes, uh, and especially the one in um, The Death of uh, Halpin Fraser, um, he basically says, you know, things can come back from the dead, or no, when things die, yeah. basically, they may be good on and warm spirit, spiritual people on the earth, but after they die, mm-hmm. they can become dark and ominous. Ooh. Now, <laughs> which itself is dark and ominous. Yes. Now I realize <laughs> that we're gonna. Well, I'm gonna spoil, you know, the story. It's a 135-year-old story. Sure, yeah. Now, uh, it may be new to you, so you may want to 
fast forward a little bit here, but um, um, we know that, so it's basically this guy comes up from Napa Valley, uh -huh. somewhere Washington, Oregon, Oleander, Oregon, Yeah. Uh, and he starts, um, I, I'm really going to have to listen to this because I missed a lot when I read, he starts freaking out and he starts seeing tombstones and he thinks his mom killed him, but maybe he killed his mom and maybe his mom's come back as a vampire or something. And then he dies. And then two cops find the body. <laughs> okay. All right. Now, we know for a fact Lovecraft read this story. Sure. Yeah. Because he, he mentions it in um, uh, Supernatural Horror and Literature. Okay. Um, so I'm going to say that if Lovecraft read it, mm -hmm. we can probably assume Robert Block wrote it. Okay. So a supernatural, maybe not really, but maybe psychological, um, maybe crazy, not crazy person who has an Oedipal complex. Sure. Sounds kind of like Norman Bates. Yeah. So, <laughs> so maybe this is, maybe there, maybe this is. I don't know. I have never, I've never seen any connection. But maybe this is something that, and and I realize too that Block cycle the short story <laughs> is not the movie doesn't follow it completely no, no. there's a lot of differences there <laughs> but maybe this might have inspired Psycho yeah definitely definitely could be a possibility I don't have to say definitely inspired uh, yeah, but I, yeah. I, and, and I don't I don't think anybody's ever done any sort of academic research into that uh-huh um, then the other, of course, is that comes in is the inhabitant of Kakorsa. Uh, yeah, yeah. And this is kind of where, and so this story reminds me a lot. This basically guy's going through, um, he's waking up, he looks up in this cloud, and he sees uh, the Hebrides and Aldebaran, mm -hmm. yeah, or Hades. And this is where we kind of connect it with space. Sure. But, and Bears' story, he's obviously on Earth because he can see. I don't know if you heard Ralph there. Yeah, he's Ralph's like, agreeing. yeah, Earth. I live because there too. Because he, he can see the constellations that he's familiar with. Sure. And that we're familiar with. And then he goes and he finds a gravestone with his name on it. Ooh, not good. And, and like I said, we know that Lovecraft was greatly influenced by Beers, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but this reminds me a lot of The Outsider. Yeah. Now, this is not a completely original idea to Beers. Edgar Allan Poe had stories like this, too, sure. so it, it's not the most original story, mm -hmm. but we can really see, I think, a lot of Mythos' influence in, in those two stories. And especially um, the death of um, uh, Halpin Frazier, where there is no matter what's this um, dysfunctional relationship with his mom, mm -hmm. I think Lovecraft probably saw life in that. Yeah. Okay. And both of these stories are set off with quotes from Holly. And we never see 
Bierce never mentions Hallie anymore. Sure. He doesn't, he's not a character. He's just this wisdom of occult, you know, is this font of occult wisdom that people, that people can recognize at the beginning of the stories. Gotcha. Gotcha. Makes sense. And, and then Chambers uh, kind of, and Lovecraft get a hold of it. Uh-huh. And they can make the like Holly. Now, the thing about Holly, and you notice a lot of things like Lovecraftian terms, almost every language has a ha and a li sound. Yeah. Or a li sound. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can put it together. You know, it could be any language. Yeah. Um, so... And Holly, uh, and the Lake of Holly is sort of supposed to be in this huge sea that people kind of describe full of shagas and other things. Yeah. Um, on uh, this other intergalactic um, planet, mm-hmm. um, somewhere, you know, around Aldebaran. Yeah. And that's why Aldebaran so important to Hostor, who is also taken from Ambrosphere stories. Mm-hmm. Now, Lynn Carter kind of tried to tie it all together. And where he wrote that on this planet there was this necromancer named Holly. Yeah. Uh, who's not necessarily the Holly who is quoted in the Bear stories, but may not. Maybe he's named after. Maybe the lake. Uh, and he's basically telling people, you know, they gotta stop drowning people in lakes for um, the uh, uh, the elder gods. Um, so that's basically what I've got on Holly there. Um, and it could be Hallie, um, but yes, so it's both a person and a place, and you know, and then we start seeing it come up in um, True Detective. Yeah. Um, there's a Lake Hallie in uh, oh, uh, science fiction um, stories uh, by uh, uh, Marion Zimmler Bradley. Yeah. Uh, where there's, uh, uh, you know, one of the families is from that this planet are the Hostor family. Ah. And so, so we see a lot of people use it, but this idea that it's, it's both this, on this planet and another planet in another dimension, and in this person and that person, and maybe that crazy person, and maybe it's just a story the whole time. Oh sure, yeah, no, that's cool. That's cool. I like that. Yeah, uh, Holly. Is there anything else we wanted to talk about with Holly? Because I think that's about that's about it. Yeah, and uh, something I want to give a shout out to is if you can find it, grab a copy of Delta Green Countdown. They have some stuff on the Haster Mythos that's pretty cool, and their thoughts on the Lake Holly. Uh, is pretty cool i like it in general and also if you've been paying attention to the internet uh youtube videos whatnot and you've seen something called the back rooms 
yellow walls that just kind of seem to go on forever and ever that are reminiscent of an 80s days in uh, or, or like a conference center from the 80s that it's slowly peeling apart. Dennis Detweiler was doing that in the late 90s, but with Edwardian stuff, which like uh, crumbling Edwardian. Uh, yeah, in, in that, that exist on floors that don't exist during the daytime, but at nighttime you can find the night floors and the night floors just keep going up and up and up and up and it's 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 part of the haster mythos cycle of delta green and i have actually incorporated it i mean just like kind of like taking all the stuff from delta green on haster and like yeah that's canonical in my dnd and in my <laughs> uh just regular call of cthulhu stuff um but yeah yeah so can i throw out another Hasco trivia go for it that August Derleth wanted to call the Cthulhu mythos uh-huh. the Hastor mythos. Yeah. But uh, it was D- uh, Don Wondry mm-hmm. who explained to him that Lovecraft didn't invade, invent Hastor. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Huh. So that's so that's why we don't that's why we don't call the Cthulhu mythos the Hastor mythos. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. All right. Uh. Well. Uh, we'll be back in a little bit with Ken, and then after that, I will be back, and we're going to be talking about Hondor and Gish and all that kind of fun stuff. All right, we'll be back in a bit. Hey, everyone, we are back, and oh, man, good thing it's not too late in the day, because I am enjoying the heck out of this copper cow coffee. Uh churro flavor uh, working my way through the churro flavor and then i've got some mocha that i'm really a big fan of and uh yeah yeah there's the salt caramel they've got the lavender and they've also got their various tea lattes that i highly recommend and you know what i i, I just say if you even just want like something really nice like you've got your own little uh vietnamese pour over they have whole bean coffee that i think is worth ordering and get a subscription for that and you'll get like four bags in a month and that's for me for me that's 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 forty dollars worth of coffee and plus there's a discount on the subscription i have to look up how much all that would be but yeah just getting your coffee shipped to you so you don't have to worry about it that's i don't know i like that anyway copper cow coffee uh thank you for sponsoring the show and check them out in the show notes along with all of our other really cool sponsors all right, in a moment, Dave and I will be talking about D&D, and I'll be explaining who Hondor is, and Dave will go, oh yeah, I know that guy. All right, back in a moment. Welcome to Innsmouth, stranger. Hi, I'm Rob Whiten from the Innsmouth Book Club. Join me and my fellow guide, John Chadwick, as we take you on a fortnightly tour of Innsmouth. We visit places such as the Picture House, the Library and Innsmouth Museum to discuss all aspects of weird fiction, whether it be book, film, music, TV or art. As well as that, we stop over at the Gilman House to have a chat with a resident guest. That includes authors, 
artists, musicians, in fact, Lovecraftian creatives of all types. You can find our free shows on Patreon, and there you can also sign up as a patron, which brings you bonus content, plus a monthly PDF copy of Innsmouth News, which features articles, author spotlights, all the latest news and reviews, and more. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash Innsmouth BC. We hope to see you soon, because remember, Innsmouth isn't just a place, it's a state of mind. Hey everyone, it's me, DB. New sponsor on the show, Glary. Glary offers a great price and better quality goods and services for music lovers. Are you looking for good prices, free shipping, 100% quality guarantee? Glary's got you covered. Guitars, bass guitars, mandolins, they've got saxophones, trumpets, drums, they've got guitar cases, amplifiers, all the stuff that you need without having to break the bank. Inexpensive doesn't have to be cheap. Check out the show notes to find more about Glary. 20 watt amplifiers for under $50. Hard cases for your electric guitar for under $80. Guitars themselves for under $90. Come on, folks, check out the show notes. Get a glary. Thank you once again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that'll tell you how to support the show, how to support our guests, and thank you to all of our guests you can find in the show notes. Rate, review, subscribe, and remember, patrons get priority access to asking us questions, suggesting topics, even, I don't know, uh, submitting stuff. Actually, you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show, too. It's the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Thank you for listening. Back to the show. And so this is the part of the show to somebody else whose name is not DB or his initials are not DB and uh, Ken uh, Ken Height a friend of the show who's been on many times with DB uh, could you maybe introduce yourself to people who maybe not heard uh, you on the show um, yeah I guess for new listeners or listeners who've uh, somehow lucked out uh, my name is Kenneth Height I'm a uh, mostly a full-time tabletop game designer, role-playing games, mostly. Uh, I also do a little bit of writing, uh, some fiction, mostly nonfiction, and amongst the writing that I do has been uh, not just the day, uh, uh, <clears throat> not just Trail of Cthulhu, the role-playing game, Vampire the Masquerade, the role-playing game, Fall of Delta Green, the role-playing game. I worked on the Delta Green role-playing game, but also uh, for... Uh, Lovecraftian children's books from Atlas Games, uh, The Cthulhu Wars for Osprey Publishing. So lots of allied material, I guess is how you put it. 
And in fact, you wrote something that is on my top ten best things ever written in the English language. Oh my God! You should read Suppressed more than fourteen transmissions. Books. <laughs> oh, thanks. I yeah. love that, and that 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 has always been in the last two decades. That's always been one of my books I pick up uh, when I need to pick me up. I just okay. I love high weirdness, and that's the best. Whether you guys are gamers or gurps or not. If you're into high weirdness, suppress transmissions. It was a it was a good gig. It was uh, Steve Jackson Games basically gave me a column and said, write whatever you want, just make sure it's in by Friday, and then that turned into a, a pretty good time. Yeah, no, I I, I love those. Um, but you've got a new project, so tell me about your new books. Yeah, the new book is uh, the second in the Tour to Lovecraft series. I did a book called Tour to Lovecraft The Tales back in 2008, which was just me responding mostly to each Lovecraft story and, to a lesser extent, to the various critics' responses to each Lovecraft story, sort of to give new readers or people who are not super Lovecraftians a, a, a leg up, a a foothold, something to agree or disagree with, at least, to start their critical process. And then that uh, became, uh, it, people were interested enough in that, that Stephen Siegel, who at that time was the uh, nonfiction editor at Weird Tales, said, Ken, would you like to do a, a column in Weird Tales? And you don't have to ask me that twice. So I said, sure. And I pitched him a collection uh, on Lovecraftian settings. Uh, and so... He called it Lost in Lovecraft, which had a lovely air supply vibe. Uh, and so I did about uh, a dozen of those for Weird Tales before Weird Tales went through one of its seasonal molting phases. We basically, I wanted to finish the series, and we went out and we kickstarted an expanded version of Tour to Lovecraft The Tales and a all-new compilation called Tour to Lovecraft The Destinations that would finish that series and then add a few more uh, destinations and uh, sort of setting adjacent concepts uh, like Deep Time or uh, The Swamp or things like that. Oh, excellent. Now, um, I know that that was a Kickstarter program. Can our listeners still get those books? Or Oh, absolutely, yeah. You can buy them from uh, the Atomic Overmind Press web store, or you can go to any uh, top-quality uh, game store and some very top-quality bookstores and buy them. Uh, they're in hardback. Right now, uh, I've seen them on shelves, and I've seen uh, very gratifying social media from various bookstore owners and game store owners that are friends of mine saying, uh, look, Ken, your book finally came in. Thanks a lot. Oh, excellent. And, and we all make sure that we have some links so that, that people who are listening can find it. Wonderful. Now, as you, you are a writer, but you're also primarily a, a game designer, does that give you some sort of affinity or maybe insight to to the concept of setting? I often say that uh, in the role-playing game, as generally understood, the player's job is character, the GM's job is plot, and the designer's job is setting. If you take the great Aristotelian tripos there, that's how it breaks down. So as the designer, I've been, I've been preparing settings and describing settings and writing up settings and offering settings basically my whole career, whether that's Star Trek or uh, Lovecraft Country or um, uh, a post-apocalyptic world of uh, submachine guns and sorcery or whatever it happens to be, that's kind of my job is to present all the parts 
of the story that are not either uh, the the protagonist, the main characters, or the or the actual story, the plot. So the the setting has been my job, really. You know, as long as I've been doing this business, and so I don't know that that gives me any greater insight into it than anybody else. But I do. I think I have a pretty good idea of what works and what doesn't work in a game, and to an extent that makes me aware when I'm looking at a new uh, a new property or a new uh, medium. You know, what's the setting? What's the what's the backdrop here? What's going on? And I think that that then creates a appreciation for what Lovecraft was doing because, of course, Lovecraft, as you know, a deprecated character almost completely, yeah. and he thought plot was less important than uh, atmosphere, less important than incident. Uh, he plotted very carefully with a lot of his stories, but that was not what the story was about to him, right? The story to, to him was about atmosphere. It was about the feeling that it evoked in you. And again, for Lovecraft, partly because of his uh, psychology and partly because it's the only thing left in the Aristotelian Tripos, that redounded to setting. And so he always, always, always uh, addresses setting in some way and usually in a uh, very deep and layered and meaningful way. And it just always struck me as as weird that that is not what a lot of people have, have examined uh, in terms of the literary criticism of Lovecraft, such that there has been. People you know, talk about I, I, his philosophy or they talk about, you know, his uh, autobiography or other things that are fine, but they're not seemingly core to the story in that way. Or, or, or his prose, but I have to admit that I've really been thinking about, since I knew we were going to do this interview, I've really been thinking about Lovecraft and setting a lot differently than, than I had before. I mean, that's one, that's one of the things I don't, I don't pretend that I did a, a, a you know, a, a job that no one could do. And certainly Stephen Maraconda, um, Peter Cannon, absolutely, Robert Waugh, all of these Lovecraftian scholars have talked about setting and addressed it. But, you know, to sort of ask it soup to nuts, what's it doing in, in as much of Lovecraft as I can get one book around, I, I think I'm the first person to do that, which, again, means that I have a relatively easy job because I can say all the obvious things and then someone you know, smarter than me, you know, can come along and, uh, and uh, you know, really nail it. But I, I just feel like that's such an unexplored part of the Lovecraftian, you know, literary work. Uh, I mean, and I, I'm not talking about arguments over where was Arkham, uh, which are great arguments, by the way, and I'm happy to have them all day. But I think it's more uh, important to ask, what is Arkham? What's it doing, right? As opposed yeah. to, is it in... You know, Oakham and Greenwich, or is it in Salem and Danvers? Where where exactly is Arkham? It's like, well, you know, Lovecraft in his letters pretty much says it's Salem, and that's fine. Um, yeah. But I, uh, I I want to know more about that. Or or, or why? Why, why right. did he choose this? Mm-hmm. Oh. Now, now you, you brought it up a little bit, but but what exactly is Lovecraft Country to you? I mean, part of the wonderful thing that Lovecraft did that I don't know if people appreciate as much as they should is that he didn't only invent wonderful, terrifying places like Arkham and Innsmouth and Dunwich, but he also took places like Antarctica and made them mythical, right? He, he took 
you know, the Catskills Mountains. He took a physical spot and he dug into it and he made it a horror setting. He did it with Providence. And now uh, we're so used to Stephen King, for example, having done that endlessly with Maine or um, uh, Anne Rice or Poppy Z. Bright doing it with New Orleans or uh, Ramsey Campbell doing it with the Midlands. We think, well, of course, that's just how you write horror. But the point is that before Lovecraft, very few people wrote horror that way. It was much more a thing that you did if you were writing regional fiction. And Hawthorne does some of it, obviously, in uh, Young Goodman Brown or in um, uh, House of the Seven Gables. Mackin gets into a little bit. The Great Return, of course, very setting-focused, little bits of the Red Hand, uh, some of his London stories. Um, M.R. James, obviously, is really the only person that I'd put in the same category with Lovecraft in terms of melding the the terror and the terroir, if you will. Um, but Lovecraft's Arkham is so much deeper and bigger and more than uh, M.R. James's Burnstow that you can't, I, I, you know, you can say, yes, James is doing an amazing, light, delicate watercolor almost job with it. Now here comes Lovecraft with the huge oil impasto really nailing it down. Yeah. And, and 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 Lovecraft did it so well and so memorably and so importantly that it's been sort of accepted by everyone. To, oh, this is how you do it. Now you have Tim Powers' Los Angeles, or now you have Fritz Leiber's San Francisco. That's just how we all write horror now. But we didn't write horror before Lovecraft did, did it that way, and I think that that's one of the sort of most important things. So I guess my answer to your question is Lovecraft Country is anywhere that Lovecraft looks. And because he is remythologizing the backdrop of Oklahoma or of uh, wherever he's or Vermont he's recreating that or Providence he's turning regular America regular world into Lovecraft world and that's something that again I think that's part of why people respond to Lovecraft in a way that they don't to you know Seabury Quinn or somebody who yeah all right so he probably has an adventure set in New York City or Boston or somewhere but no one cares because that's not the point. The point there is just a little puzzle of how do we stop this weird demon monster? No, de de definitely, definitely. And even with his love hate hate relationship, while you're talking, I was thinking about Lovecraft's New York. Yeah, it's it, it's a it, classic like, like he and yeah, he, uh, Cool Air, uh, Red Hook, obviously. Um, yeah, they're all. Very, very interesting and very, very informative uses of the setting of New York City. And obviously, I have a New York City essay in the uh, the book. Um, and I, I, I'm not the by far. The, New York is one of those places that, for whatever reason, I, I think I blame the 20th century. Uh, that has been paid attention to. David Hayden, of course, has a a wonderful book on New York as Lovecraft's psychogeography. That it's his sort of involved nightmare in, uh, in, in to put words in David Hayden's mouth but you can look at the um, uh, at, at the way that he approaches New York and then you can use that as a mirror or a lens through which to look at his approaches to virtually everywhere that he has that yeah. same a weird doubling tendency uh, when he when he looks at not just uh, New York or Providence or Boston but also at places he made up at, even at Innsmouth, where you would think, well, that's just a one-note place. Well, it's not, actually. There's elements of that weird fairy tale New York uh, that's at the beginning of He shows up also even in Innsmouth. So it's, a, it's you know, 
on a literary, even on a stylistic level, I think it informs you. And then once you look at it and you realize that this is, he's so desperately trying to engage the setting of New York. Uh, there's that great bit in the very first bit of uh, Red Hook where he says that uh, Thomas Malone had uh, taken a bet uh, that he would not be able to use New York in any kind of a meaningful, weird story. And he'd lost the bet, but not for the reason that he thought, right? That yeah. It's just that he can't use it because the story's too horrific. And then that, that, that's just Lovecraft pinging you and saying, this is setting. This is the important thing. This is what we're talking about. And uh, his letters about New York obviously, you know, explicate that even deeper. But there's just, you know, there's no bottom to that well. And once you start looking at Lovecraft through that setting lens, uh, you find that you can look at all of Lovecraft that way. And then it, I think at, at all of Lovecraft's settings, you can, you know, I, I certainly look at uh, Providence differently than I did before I wrote the Providence essay. Mm, wow. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to to reading those. Now, you know, from, you know, Dracula's London, you know, Camp Crystal Lake to, to you know, even the, the USS Nostromo, I think that, and, and I think you may be right, this may be a, a Lovecraft influence, but horror setting is so important to horror at least now and, and and why why do you think so i mean i think that a lot of it is lovecraft's influence uh, you mentioned uh dracula's london and i that's really it's one of the stronger uh arguments that maybe this was inevitable and lovecraft was just you know there at steam engine time as charles fort would say um dracula is a book that is concerned with setting but in a different sort of a way. First of all, it's a novel. And second of all, it deliberately opposes settings. So Carfax mirrors um, uh, the Western Raw House. Uh, Transylvania mirrors London. Uh, Stoker is working with all of these different settings and playing with them. And I think some of the result is that uh, although there's a lot of good setting material about Whitby, for example, um, Whitby is always sort of subordinate to whatever the rest of the novel is doing, that it doesn't really sink in uh, as deep into Whitby as it might if it had just been one long short story, like a novella about Whitby. Um, and I think that would be sort of the difference uh, between Stoker's Dracula, which is, again, very setting-informed and I think is one of the reasons that you began to see you know, uh, that happen in horror. But I remind you, you know, Dracula didn't really sell. It wasn't a very popular book. Uh, Dracula came and it went and it was sort of ignored. And then the stage play is what brought Dracula back. And the stage play, of course, destroys all the setting because it all yeah. takes place in the same stupid house. Yeah. I mean, this is a whole different podcast if we're talking about how bad that play is. But um, Dracula's great virtues as a setting-powered horror I think become visible to us after Lovecraft in a way that they may not have been visible to uh, to um, Stoker's contemporaries because of course what they when they thought of a setting based novel they were thinking of like Dickens's London or uh, Trollope's Barsetshire and so they're looking at a social setting and hmm. Dracula is a disease that is infecting society but you don't really see a lot of society in Dracula it's a very sort of hermetically sealed novel and so the things that they were interested in about setting in the victorian era were not happening in dracula the things that lovecraft was interested in setting are happening in dracula sporadically but i think it, it takes lovecraft to sort of pull uh 
horror fully into that channel of uh, where, um, uh, you know, uh, regional fiction had been. And people can point out, for example, Sarah Orne Jewett's sort of uh, fantasy tales or, or dark fantasy, weird fantasy, whatever you want to call it, about Donut's Landing. <coughs> Certainly there are similar examples uh, throughout that whole 1890s through 1920s period when horror is being recreated. And to some extent, Stevenson really is who starts it off with the New mm. Arabian Tales, uh, the new, or rather the New Arabian Nights. But I feel like, you know, regardless of how many Aristarchuses there were before Copernicus, Copernicus is the guy who gets the credit. And I think the same thing is true of Lovecraft in this case. And, and so I, I have this theory, and, and absolutely tell me if you disagree. I think that things are scarier <coughs> in certain situations. I mean, I think that that's, I mean, certainly the um, the uh, psychologists would say that we are, and Lovecraft would say, um, that night and the forest are scarier than day and not the forest. Um, Lovecraft has a lot of Tommy Rod about why that is, but you can you know, assume some sort of evolutionary psychology if you wanted to. I think that night is scarier than day just in general because yeah. you can't see as much and there's threats and predators around. And I think that um, one of the interesting things about Lovecraft is that he doesn't set a lot of his horrors in, you know, far distant places. He talks about Seekers After Horror, uh, a journey to far distant places, but the real horror is your backyard. It's where you look back there and you're like, oh, no, that that looks wrong now. Um, and, you know, Freud, you know, in the literally the one thing Freud got right when he talks about the uncanny, it, it's not the weirdness of the uncanny. It's the homeliness of the uncanny yeah. that really messes with you. Uh, if it's just strange, then you have no grounds with which to react to it. But if it's like your backyard, but there's a shape there that wasn't there. Now you're now you're worried. And, you know, my backyard is in a relatively pleasant part of Chicago. I think that there's probably scarier bits of Chicago. But, and I think that you could argue that big cities maybe are inherently scarier, you know, children of the corn and Dunwich Horn notwithstanding, than little towns. But that's the great thing about a Lovecraft or a Stephen King is that they can turn those little towns into something scary. And, and that's really the, the Lovecraftian uh, lens dropping over setting I, I i think that you know you can you can talk about cemeteries and gothic ruins and you can talk about swamps and forests and all of those things are yep those are scary uh but you know uh you can make anything scary if you're good at it and i feel like what's really scary is recognition but not and to some extent if none of us had ever seen a dracula movie if we watched uh, something set in transylvania we'd just say well, it's dark. I don't like that. But we wouldn't be like, ooh, Transylvania, by definition, yeah. scary, right? No, exactly. Exactly. Now, I have just – I really appreciate you taking time out because I have really enjoyed talking to you about this. But uh, as we're running close to time here, this is kind of the, the question we'd like to end all of our, our interviews with. Uh, if you could be in charge of any project, any creative project, any medium, you don't have to worry about money, you don't have to worry about copyrights, what is your dream project now? Well, I mean, there's dream projects and there's fantasy projects. I mean, I think this is a fantasy project. We'll go say, fantasy project. Don't worry about um, uh, copyrights and money. 
but I've been lucky enough to work on most of the IPs I actually legitimately care about. I've done, you know, Star Trek. I've done Lovecraft. Uh, what I would like is, you know, this is maybe a little bit of a, of a give back. I would love to, you know, somehow be in charge of the Netflix streaming show that is, you know, a 10-episode adaptation of Tim Powers' novel Declare. I think that um, I would I would love to see that uh, done correctly, done as a multi-episode, you know, um, Tinker Tailor uh, level of quality. Um, and I think that it's uh, just ridiculous that someone who is easily, you know, America's first or second best fantasy author is so little known. And so, yeah, I would want to do uh, Netflix or HBO Max uh, version of Declare. I think that would be my fantasy project when you're putting it that way. Well, I would love to watch that. Um, and again, so um, where would it be uh, the best place for our listeners to be able to get your, your books? Um, well, obviously, uh, the best place is to go to Atomic Overmind Press uh, and uh, buy them from uh, Hal, my beloved publisher. Uh, failing that, um, call your area game store, your area uh, special interest bookstore, and see if they uh, have them in stock. And if not, maybe see if they'll order them for you. Uh, can't hurt to throw a little love to your uh, friendly neighborhood game store. We've all seen that small business basically got hit by a series of tsunamis and hurricanes over the last couple of years. So oh, yeah. there's someone out there that you would like to still uh, see in business next week. You know, call them tomorrow and say, I want Tour to Lovecraft, make it happen, and see if that works. Excellent. And, and I know uh, our local one here in Portland, they'll even, if they special order something, they'll give you a discount too. Well, there you go. You can't, can't ask for better than that. Um, so I... Uh, yeah, uh, I, obviously, um, if you're one of those electronic people, you can buy the PDF right from uh, Atomic Overmind, and it's in EPUB and Mobi and whatever other formats you want. But the physical book is lovely. It's got cool endpapers. It's got a fold-out map of uh, the Miskatonic Valley done after the style of a 1933 Shell uh, gas station map that I found. Oh. Um, I got Mark Richardson, who's a great cartographer, uh, to put that together. Um, so I would say that the physical, uh, the physical item is, is very much worth it as a, a, not just as a collector's item, not just as an objet d'art, but also as, you know, the way books are supposed to be. So it, it has weight. It I does. love the weight of Gravitas, books. Gravitas, if you will. Yes. Or, or just physical weight. I love yep. the, the way books feel uh, on my, on my hand when I hold them. Mm. That's probably too much information for my listening public. You, but need, I, I you, love need to, books. you need to just hold them away from the goats, I guess. Yes, I do. Well, thank you. Any anything else you'd like to share before um, uh, we let you go? Uh, no, just uh, thanks so much for having me on, David. Um, good to talk to you. Say hi to DB for me, obviously. I um, will. He sends his best, and um, yeah, hope to have you on again soon. All right, fantastic, man. Looking forward to it. Thank you so much. I, I, that is such a good interview. You're listening to KZOM Oleander Public Radio. Hey everyone, we're back with D&D on D&D. I'm one of those Ds. Here's that other D. Dave, what's going on? I am waiting to learn about Hondor. Okay. So it's D&D on 
HD. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Clark Ashton Smith, are, you're familiar with the story, The Seven Geishas, uh, which introduces Adlachna Cha and Sathagwa and all that kind of fun stuff, right? Yes. In fact, I went through it, and did I miss it? I went through a PDF and looked for Hondor's name. I did not find it. Uh, what was the name of the uh, the, 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 the necromancer that Falabar Zeus? I don't know. I just put F. Maybe I misspelled it. Okay. Uh, the necromancer that he went up into uh, Mount Vormith address is uh, Hondor. Hondor. Uh, the anti-human necromancer. And I don't know if it's it's if it's if it's like maybe my source for that is is wrong, but Or may, maybe I maybe I misspelled it. Yeah. But I did find a fragment Ooh. of a story uh, called Hondor or Hondor's land or something. Uh -huh. But he doesn't appear in that one either, apparently. Okay. I controlled that the heck out of that. And I didn't find them, so so I'm gonna leave I'm gonna leave all the Hondor, uh, the Hondor wisdom to you because I, yeah. All right. So what I was thinking is is um okay so Hondor is high enough level to at least cast a fifth level enchantment called Gius. A uh, magical command on a creature that you can see within range, forcing it to carry out some surface or refrain from some action or course of activity as you decide. If the creature can understand you, it must succeed on a wisdom savings throw or become charmed for your duration. While the creature is charmed by you, it takes 5d10 physical damage each time it acts in a manner directly counter to your instructions. But no more than once each day, a creature, uh, a creature can't, if uh, if a creature can't understand you, it's unaffected by the spell. You can issue any command you choose, short of activity that would result in certain death. Should you issue a suicidal command, the spell ends. Okay, so I think so. So, so, so I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, no what problem. What I do know a little bit is about Celtic mythology. Yeah. And so Gius is where sort of this almost a blessing curse. Okay. You know, if you eat dog meat, you will die. Okay. But here's the blessing part. You don't eat dog meat, you're not going to die. <laughs> and, and, and the Celtic heroes use that. Well, they're like, well, I'm not to, unless I eat dog meat, I'm not going to die, so I'm going to go in and fight. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's kind of a, a two-edged sword in Celtic mythology. Okay. Now, I know it was a D&D &D spell. Uh, but I, I've never, in my, you know, literally four decades of playing D and think I've ever had a player cast the spell. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I've used it as like something that bad guys do, especially since it, you know, damages you if you uh, do something counter to it, uh, kind of like command, but like hurts. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um. And, uh, yeah, no, um, like, and, 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 okay, so what I wanted to talk about is Hondor, the spell Gius, and, okay, so, how, how, how what, what, what level do you have to be to cast a fifth level enchantment? Uh, I believe you have to be eight. Eight, okay. 
or, or is it nine? Let me go. So first, okay, so second is third level, right? Sure, sure. Uh, and third is fifth level. Mm-hmm. And fourth is seventh level. Yeah. And so we're looking fifth level. Mm-hmm. So nine. Okay, okay. Nine, nine level. So we're talking at least. I was told there'd be no math. <laughs> a ninth. Oh, I figured you'd just look at a chart. Uh, a, a ninth level uh, wizard of some sort or sorcerer or whatnot. But we're going to say. Yeah, yeah now, now that's yeah. true. That's, that's, I think, that's wizard. There are other, other classes that it would take higher. Yeah. I mean, it, you, you may have to be a higher level to get to, like. Uh, Warlock might be higher. Yeah, I, I don't think he was a bard, is, is what I'm saying. So we have, like, a wizard who practices necromancy and is a jerk who lives up in the mountains. I, I love this idea for... I mean, this is, like, kind of a classic idea. It's like the king says, oh, hey, uh, Falabar Zoo, or... I, mean, I keep saying the guy's name wrong, uh, but you know who I'm talking about. Go over there and get rid of that necromancer for us. And I love this story so much. It's such a fun story, in my opinion. It uh, kind of pokes fun at, like, the, uh, I don't know, um, what do you call it? The uh, Trials of Asterix or Trials of Hercules. Hercules. And any kind of, like, demigod dealing with bureaucracy kind of stuff. Uh, I, I kind of like it. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, this would be like if... Almost like if a, a Dunsanian hero was sent on a quest, but not not quite Dunsanian. I, I guess it's uh, quite Clark Ashtian, <laughs> Smithian. Uh, but yeah, no, no, very much uh, Hyperborea and all that kind of fun stuff. Or Hyperborea, I can't remember who does what anymore. And um, but no, no, my my my, my thoughts were is basing stuff off of like this story uh the seven geas and hondor and stuff like that would be fairly easy and like you know we we've talked about alach we've talked about sathagwa's family we've talked about various things found in the seven geas and I, i i just like hondor is kind of like figuring out who Hondor would be I think would be like just perfect to kind of like turn this story into a D&D like Dave besides being wanted for necromancy besides being maybe a reclusive nut who just talks to uh, a dinosaur bird all the time uh, and and um, Vormi um, I can't remember how to pronounce that dinosaur bird name and, you know, Vormi are the uh, orange uh, Deanderthal type who, uh, I mean, honestly, they're just... Sasquatchy. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I just, like, they're, they're just Deanderthals or Sasquatches or whatever you want to call them. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 like that's that's uh, who, who he has backing him up. And then he has, like, a bunch of monster gods living underneath the mountain uh, where he, he, he set up shop. And... It's, 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 it's kind of like this reverse dungeon. You think you could easily just like walk up and whoop on this dude 
and then maybe he uses his familiar to cast through his dinosaur lizard and then you've got Gia's cast on you and you have to go and do this stupid thing oh yeah I want you to go down and talk to Sathagwa I mean that doesn't mean it's certain doom if you look in the Call of Cthulhu uh, guidebook I mean there's a 50-50 chance he'll eat you that's not certain doom <laughs> And, and I think as a, a dungeon master, I'm always kind of reticent to do something that would force a a, a character into mm-hmm. a situation like that. Yeah. But what I definitely would do was have them cast it on their patron or their friend or their family. So, so you're not really taking away the free choice. Of, of the character or the player. Yeah. But you're still, especially, you know, they're ninth level and they've, you know, this character, you know, raised them or has been married to them since they were second level. You're definitely holding them over a barrel, but you're not using mechanics to, to, to control. Yeah. 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 No. And it's like, say, say it's like Balavar Sue's, uh, like, son or daughter or something like that a child who uh you know sneaky necromancer hondor spies picking flowers in the hyperborean plains and casts gius is like you must speak to sathagwan offer your flowers to him and then it's like oh no yeah you know then 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 the, the dinosaur bird flies over and like tells Sanzibar go about like what happened and how his daughter's gonna be eaten by Sathagwa. So he has to go and save her. Fight through the Vormi, fight through this, fight through that. Solve a riddle by Atlachnacha or something like that. You got yourself a game. Yes, you do. <laughs> Put that thing on slow simmer because you got yourself a game. But yeah, no. And uh, just basically, you could probably just build kind of a base structure kind of roughly map out where you're going to have encounters at or what kind of things are happening you know either have it like based off of location or based off of during times like where roughly things would be like if you wanted to do it in like kind of more of a logical location then always having trolls are right here i don't know uh I, I guess, I mean, I'm like, we're not necessarily saying this is how you role play and this is how you do this, but this is a cool idea. And if you wanted to make it like a little bit more, I don't know, crunchy, you definitely could go to the trouble of figuring out like sleep schedules or like being like, there's, or my personal favorite, percentile dice. Using percentile dice to be like, okay, uh, if we go here, the Vormi are probably going to, you know, this much of them are going to be sleeping this much of them are going to be active i don't know i guess that's not something we really talk about dave but how would you handle uh like patrols and time of day and stuff like that in a lightless environment um so i tend to i tend to and this is just me sure I tend to roll the dice and lie and say, oh, look it, I got a random encounter. And I've, I've had this fun now for months. Um, the one where I do random encounters yeah. tend to be like, um, 
my cyberpunk people are at a party or a gotcha. rave. Okay. Yeah. And it works out pretty well. I mean, and you know, ever, ever since, you know, I think there were, what, random encounters with keep in the borderland. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, it, it's it's an honored, hot, trying honored thing. Um, but I would more likely, like in a dark pit, I would have the monster picked out. Okay. But have the party make a stealth roll. Gotcha. Okay. And you're going to assume, first of all, you know, I, I mean, it's a completely different situation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, if you're, um, you know, you've got torches and stuff. Sure. Uh, because you're going to say if people are coming in with torches, you know, all, all the animals are going to see it or monsters are going to see it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I would, I would maybe have it prepared out, but if they don't tr- uh, trick it, I mean, trip it, mm-hmm. if they make a stealth roll. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Or, or if they're going across like a rope bridge or something. Sure. Make an athletics roll, see if the vibrations. Ooh. Make sure that, you know, don't wake up uh, a lot in the jaws children or anything like that. Exactly. Uh, oh, man. And there's like Ubo Safla and <laughs> all that fun stuff. Uh, yeah, no, no. And uh, other thing I want to talk about with Haunt Door is, you know, I, I said before, why is, why is a necromancer hanging out in a mountain full of Neanderthal Sasquatch people. It's a necromancer. Could be building a skeleton army or a zombie army of Vormi to go attack that uh, kingdom that uh, Falabar Smoo is uh, sent from. You know? Uh, I mean, that's... You know, if you have skeletons, I mean, I guess they'd maybe be large-sized skeletons. Yeah, I would. Um, yeah, I would say at least ogre size. Yeah, I mean, that's that's not something to sneeze at. <laughs> no, no. And if you have some tribal society that um, maybe they don't notice if someone gets conked on the head or. You know, maybe uh, Hondor is like, hey, I've got these glass beads for you. Bring me your dead. You know, all you're going to do is throw them on a fire. I've got a much nicer fire, and I'll make sure that they go to their god. Uh, you know, uh, and then, then you know, turns them into skeletons. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and or that, or, or yeah. maybe they see him as a god, and then this <laughs> This is some to them. This is some form of resurrection. Oh yeah, yeah, and there may even be some. Uh, I don't know. Um, might 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 be some of those orange uh, Neanderthals that are able to, uh, like I don't know, be like druids or uh, clerics of a necromantic god or something like that. That just assume that Hondor is is. Uh, the uh, the emissary of because the fact that Hondor is far more powerful than a bard or a druid that does necromancy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh man, I don't know. I've tried playing a bard necromancer, 
That is a tough gig. <laughs> yeah. What what the, did they play death metal music? Uh just dirges mostly, but yeah, yeah, they could strum out some death metal for sure. Um. <laughs> But we're not talking about death metal. We are talking about Hondor, and we're talking about the cave systems. We're talking about Mount Vormeath, Address, and what else can you, like, it's like I think about, like, subterranean necromancer um, access to, like, we're, we're, we're talking about a necromancer who has access to eldritch gods, not eldritch gods, but great old ones who are just hanging out and... You know, if you take a couple guards with you, you throw one at Sathagwa, and then Sathagwa's, like, satisfied, and then you can be like, hey, I'll throw you this other guard if uh, <laughs> you tell me some more secrets. <laughs> so you bring four so, guards. So, so uh, yeah, and so, you know, um, and, and again, I know maybe I hype this a little bit too much, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, a warlock, because they got, you know... You've got a couple of different patrons now. You, you've got the Outer God type patron. Yeah. But you also got, a, I think, in the latest, one of the latest books, Undead. So a really high powerful lich can be a, um, a warlock patron. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So, really so on cool. celestial warlocks. Yeah. Uh, celestial. So I, I'm running like an all gnome. Let's have fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't take it too serious. Sure. Um, so there's a celestial gnome uh, warlock, and one of the things that can be a patron in a cel- uh, celestial warlocks are are unicorns. Okay. So so it, it, it's a his patron is La Lipot. The uh, most powerful <laughs> unicorn ever. That's pretty fun. That's pretty fun. But yes, yeah, so I, I think that that especially with uh, uh, the eldritch or undead patron, that really fits in well into a, a warlock. Now, again, I'm not looking at the book, but you may have to be a much higher level to to get a a, a gears on. Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. Um, which I, I, I was just looking at as like the duration is one year. <laughs> and you know that honestly, if it's a year, mm-hmm. and your players are willing to go into it, yeah, uh, that could be a really good campaign origin. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, especially if it if it's is you know their king or something or something not necessarily them mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but uh, that, that could be a really good uh campaign or uh origin for a campaign oh yeah yeah no definitely definitely it's like uh the king has uh, a geas cast upon it and the party's job is to keep the king alive while the king goes on what is essentially a suicide mission through the bowels of the earth or, or you know it could be the gears has to be resolved not Ooh. necessarily by the king yeah you know the king just has to make it done yeah so that way you know he, he, maybe he's not a warrior so but or maybe he's a smart king he's like well i'll just send the these people 
Y yeah, yeah, but um, I was like, uh, while the creature is charmed, it takes 5d10 each time it acts in a manner directly counter to your instructions. So if Hondor so, so said, you must walk down and speak with. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, no, I feel like we figured out some ways to use Hondor from Clark Ashton Smith's The Seven Geas. Uh, we figured out some ways to use Geas's, uh, seven of them. And I don't know how, if, if we figured out seven different ways to use the Geas's. Uh, yeah, no, I, I figured out, we figured out uh, that that, that uh, Vormi could become large skeletons in, 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 under the right necromancer. And heck, uh, Hondor could even be a warlock and uh, people are just misnaming him. But yeah, yeah, I think that's... I think that's pretty good for uh, Hondor. Consi I think so. Considering the fact that you didn't know who I was talking about when I texted yes. to you the other day. so I think that is yeah. very good. All right. Cool, cool. Well, everyone, we've come to that point again where Dave... Uh, Dave Dave has to go back to his stuff, and I, I get to turn off all the Chip equipment. Is, Chip is... Chip is very putting down on his Yelp review. They are slow at providing milk on demand. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. No, I'm going to turn off all this equipment and walk down the hill from the radio station and uh, see if I can't fix that artichoke plant. And remember to rate, review, subscribe, check out Ken Hyde's book. What's the name of that book, Dave? So he's got a couple of books here coming out, and I'm sorry, Ken, I'm looking it up right now. Oh, I'll, I'll cut this part out for sure. Okay, it is. He's Lovecraft Country, The Journeys? No. Uh, Something like that. You know, I, you type in Ken Heights book and it comes up, you know, uh, Clifford the Big Red God and the Book Hounds of London and one of, you know, I told him I, uh, I absolutely, uh, Tour de Lovecraft. Yeah, that's I was I was typing in Tour de Lovecraft right when you said that. <laughs> so yeah, uh, check out Tour de Lovecraft by Ken Height. Links in the show notes for sure, and uh, I'll I'll also throw in a link for any and all of Ken's stuff uh, in general that 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 Amazon has up. And if you buy anything off that, we'll get a little tiny percentage. Nothing to write home about. But hey, every little bit helps. And also every little bit helps if you check out our sponsors down below and uh, help out the show. And, of course, uh, we've got the shop in the store where you can get many of the cool t-shirts that we have going on, such as uh, the Ralgay Charles, Tell Your Ma, Tell Your Pa, Ship You Down to Safagua. Safagua comes up again. And all the various Join a Cult t-shirts that we've got going on. And, um, golly gee, uh... 
you know what? I, I, I think I, I'm super excited about next week when we're going to be talking about Haster and Haunting Horrors. Maybe we'll just talk about Haster. I haven't, haven't nailed that one out yet. But uh, everyone, thank you again for listening to us talk about Hondor and Holly this week on People's Guide to Cthulhu Mythos. Keep weird. Stay squiggly. And Dave, we'll see you next week. Yes, we will. Maybe, may, may, maybe I'll bring Chip on, uh, on the air so he can tell you guys just how badly the planet Earth is. <laughs> That'd be fun. Uh, I'll have to say it was uh, fun hearing Roy again. I haven't heard Roy for a while on the back. Yeah, he's, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's pretty passionate about Holly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, so am I. And something else I'm passionate about is getting something to eat because I need to eat. All right, everyone. We'll see you next time, and goodbye. Bye. That was a good episode. Yeah, it'd be very good, yes. Written in front of a live studio audience in Oleander, Oregon, by David Swisher and David Heath. Special thanks to Kenneth Hyde. Music is always by ZB Splitter. Thank you again, and have yourselves a pleasant evening. Goodbye.